a very personal letter, but because of the way that God inspired it, it ended up in the canon of Scripture for us to benefit from. So um, as we begin, Paul writes, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Aphia, I'm probably butchering these, Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. So in the first three verses, uh, Paul writes essentially a greeting. And we've been over this before. He unrolls this scroll. If he would write a letter, it would be rolled up. And so before unrolling the whole thing, imagine if you had the book of Romans on a scroll, all of the chapters, and you unrolled it, you'd have to go all the way to the end to see who in the world was writing to you. So they would write at the top who it was from, so everything else is in context of who wrote it. So Paul writes, and he doesn't say, Paul, an apostle. I find that interesting because in many of his other letters, for instance, Galatians, he writes Paul, an apostle, to kind of explain where he gets his authority from. I get my authority, he says, from the one who I am under, and that is Jesus. I'm an apostle. I'm a sent one. But in the book of Philemon, he says, Paul, a prisoner. Now, if you were writing to anybody and you wanted to make sure that they knew that you had the authority to speak into their lives, I don't know that many of us would write a letter and say, hey, and by the way, just so you know my credentials, I'm in jail. You know, many times in our society, if someone wrote us from jail, we'd be like, what do they want? What, what, of course, they were not guilty, and now they're trying to get money from me or something. They, they want something from me. And in many ways, Paul's writing that to Philemon. He's going to ask him for something pretty difficult. But he's writing and not saying, hey, I'm an apostle, so I get to say to you what, I, what God has for you. But he's saying, I'm a prisoner. And he says, and Timothy. So he's not saying it's just from me, but it's also from another witness. It's from Timothy. Um, and so he says, to Philemon. He tells us who he's writing to, our beloved friend and our fellow laborer. So a, a brother in Christ. I'm writing to you, Philemon, our beloved friend and our fellow laborer. And he says also to the beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Now, there's contention on what this means. Uh, many uh, assert that he's writing to Philemon and that Aphia is actually his wife and Archippus is his son. And so in that context, many commentators say this, that he's writing to the church in their house as if, hey, our homes are places of worship, whether we look at them or like that or not. That in our home, uh, it's a church, whether it, we have church services there or not. Now, I don't necessarily hold to this because in the beginnings of the church, they wouldn't have their own building. They wouldn't have an organization. They would meet in people's homes throughout the week to encourage one another, to worship, to break bread together. And so it was more of a natural setting because think about it. If we have a meal here, it's, it's nice and it's a family setting because we're the body of Christ. But if we have a meal at someone's home, it's set up for family life. It feels more natural because people live there all the time and they enjoy life together, go through the hard stuff and the good stuff. And so what I hold to, and not necessarily dogmatically, is I believe that this was, um, this was him writing to Philemon and his wife and maybe his son, but he was writing to all those who would gather as a fellowship 
at their home weekly or however often to study the scriptures together. It was a church of God. It was a called out people that would join in a particular place to worship God. And so he says there, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we call those the Siamese twins of Paul's greetings. The grace of God is a free gift that no one deserves, and we receive it from God as a gift. But until you receive the grace of God and the forgiveness of sins, you can have no peace. There's no peace unless you've first experienced grace. And at the same time, the peace of God that God gives us cannot be given to us until we are no longer enemies of God. And so the grace and peace kind of go together. And it was a common greeting in the Roman world because, you know, you had Greek, you had Greek people, you had Gentiles that would say charis or grace in their language. And then you had the Jewish people that would be also kind of filtered in with them who would say shalom, shalom, my friend. And we go to Israel and I've been a, uh, one time now and, and people walk around, they say shalom, my friend. And they're just saying peace to you, God's peace upon your life. And so this greeting is not only because of the, the theological reasons, but also because the audience is two different audiences. You have Jewish ethnic people and you have Gentile ethnic people who would use different terms to greet one another. And so Paul writes to both of them and says, grace, charis, and shalom, peace. And so uh, I have for you here that the greeting is from a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't look at himself as a prisoner of Rome. I find that interesting because he is thrown in prison because he is a Christ follower, but he's imprisoned by the, the Roman people, the, the Roman leadership. And if you read the book of Acts, the, the last large portion of it is how he ended up in jail. And it all started in Jerusalem where somebody didn't like what he had to say. Imagine that. He stirred the pot, and because of that, they, they took him out of there, and they took him to the next people, and the next people, and he went under trial over and over again, and the only thing they had against him is that he, he was saying that Jesus is the only way to be saved. The Jews didn't like that, and the Roman people didn't like that, because in that day and age, there was a worship of Caesar. Whoever was in the position of their final authority was called to worship him. They would say, praise be to Caesar. Of course, the Christians would kind of rebel against that, and they'd say, praise the Lord God. They would say, praise Jesus. And so um, Paul was a prisoner of Rome practically, but he looked at it like this, that God's in control of everything. So if I'm a prisoner, I'm a prisoner because that's where God wants me to be. Um, and so he saw himself as a prisoner for the purposes of Christ. So it's written to these individuals and the whole church, and he says, grace and peace to you. So verse 4 he goes on and he gives thanks. Now, how many times, have you guys ever visited someone who is in prison? I have. And not, most of the time, the first words off of their lips are not, I'm so thankful that this is going on. Uh, but Paul has things to be thankful for while he's in a situation that we wouldn't ask for. He says, I thank my God and I make mention of you always in my prayers. So he's praying for Philemon. He says, hearing of your love and your faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and towards all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you, in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy 
and we have consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. So he calls him brother. And what I find interesting is he says, I thank my God and I make mention of you in my prayers and I have heard of your love and your faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and towards all the saints. So his faith is so groundbreaking that Paul, all the way in Rome, has heard about it. Philemon is in or near the Colossian area of the, the kingdom at that time. So he's not close to him. So he's heard of the love and the faithfulness of this man Philemon. And what you don't know is that the Colossian church was close, but Paul didn't start either of these churches. He actually, many believe that the Ephesian church had such an effect on their area that there was church plants that went out from there. And my prayer is that as we grow over the years, we're five years old, that down the road, maybe God would send a church plant out from us, whether it be to a larger place or a smaller place, it doesn't matter to me, but that we would be fruitful. Because as a church, um, God sees us as his sheep, right? The Lord is our shepherd. Healthy sheep do what? They reproduce. So hopefully, individually, we are disciples who go and make disciples. But as a church, my prayer is that we would be a church who goes out and shoots out other plants of churches, that the, the seed of God's word would be so implanted in our hearts and in our minds that we would not only affect our entire valley and every crack and crag from there, but that we would affect the county that surrounds us, that needs the light of God's word. And so um, he, he's writing to this young man or this, this man, uh, not only because, he, it's not just because he planted the church there, but because he knows Philemon personally, he wants to speak into his life. And so he says, I thank God for you uh, because his love and, his, and, and your faith towards Jesus and all the saints has known not only to those that are around you, but I've heard about it, uh, which fulfills the greatest commandment, right? In Matthew chapter 22, uh, a young man or a, 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 a tax, I can't remember who it was, someone approached Jesus and said, okay, uh, good teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said to him, uh, well, if you want to know which one's the most important, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, uh, but he said, and the second one is like it, you shall love your neighbor like you love yourself. And so if that is in fact taking place, it's taking place in Philemon's life because he has faith towards God and it's changed his relationship towards individuals around him. And, and I think if there's one thing that's, that's unfortunately lacking in the Christian church, in America at least, is that many times we believe and we trust God, but we don't love our neighbor. And that's like one of the greatest signs that we are, in fact, Jesus' followers, that how we treat people. And so... Um, his prayer for him is that his faith and sharing would be effective and that his active faith had refreshed the hearts of the saints, that it would continue to do so. And so in verse 8, we kind of start realizing why Paul's written this letter. And if uh, you've ever had any training on being a manager, I have not, but I've heard people quote it, um, they say that if you want to deliver a tough message to somebody, maybe a hard truth, you put it in a sandwich you have a, a love sandwich. You have the, the, the bread, and then you have whatever's going to be in the middle, which is usually the tough thing, and then you put a slice of bread on the other. 
I don't know if that's because we love carbs and carbs cover a multitude of hard truths, but I, I know that it's effective. So Paul, it seems in some ways, is kind of sanctified in his buttering him up to present this hard truth to him. And if you've ever had somebody approach you and have to speak something a little difficult into your life, they, they come to it with fear and trembling because they don't want to snuff you out. They don't want to discourage you, but they at the same time have to tell you the truth. And truth with love is the perfect mixture for delivering such a message. So he says in verse 8, Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you. I'm not going to demand something from you, but I'm going to appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He says, I appeal to you, for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I'm sending him back. You, therefore, receive him that is my own heart. So I'm stopping mid-sentence. I realize I'm doing that. But he says, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting and the right thing to do, Instead of demanding that you do the right thing, because love gives a choice. God doesn't demand us to do anything. He, he says, whosoever will may come. Uh, so in this case, Paul is representing Jesus Christ. He does, he's not going to command somebody to do something. Anybody commanded to do something against their will, many times, is of the same opinion still. They might do the thing you ask them to do, but they're going to do it begrudgingly. God loves a cheerful giver, and that comes to obedience too. He doesn't force us to obey. He explains to us that if we will obey, even through the Old Testament, he told the Israelites, if you will obey, there's blessing attached to it. But if you will disobey, there are curses attached to that. That's just the law of reaping and sowing. We reap what we sow, and if we sow discord, or we sow sinfulness, if we sow a habit that's sinful, there's going to be consequences for that. But at the same time, if we will obey the Lord, even in the simplest of ways, there are consequences for that, positive ones, but there's still consequences. They're results of our life towards God. And so he says, I, I don't command it to you, but I appeal. He says in verse 9, for love's sake, I appeal to you, being such a one as Paul. And then he speaks about his age. He said, you know, I'm getting a little older. Many believe he was in his 60s. And in that day, uh, that meant you, you had lived quite a, a long time. Um, suffering, as, as Paul did especially, by the time he was in Rome, he had been stoned several times. He had been whipped 40, 40 times, less one. He had been shipwrecked overnight in the sea, in the Mediterranean Sea. So he'd been through quite a bit. His body was worn out. So here he is in prison. He, he just kind of speaks that into Philemon. He's like, hey, look, I'm an older man. I'm not going to demand anything of you, but just remember, I'm old. So, you know, you get, there's also wisdom in that. There are people in your lives that are older than you that have experienced more, and we can glean from those who have more experience than us. But then he says, I appeal to you now also as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I have done much for the faith, so much, in fact, that it's cost me jail time. And right now, at this moment, while I'm writing this letter, I'm doing it with a Roman guard attached to me. So it's costing me my faith. And so he's kind of leading into the fact that maybe your faith is getting ready to cost you something you're not necessarily looking forward to giving up. He says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. 
Now, is he saying that Onesimus is his son and he's had, uh, gotten married and he's had a child? No, he's writing about a man that they have personally in, both been involved with and we find out later that he's actually a slave of Philemon's. Now, slavery is still a hot topic, right? Especially now we have uh, people that are being enslaved in sex trade. You know, slavery is this, this human problem. And so how do we deal with it as Christians? Well, in Paul's day, in the, Roman, in the Roman Empire, slavery was kind of prevalent. It was more done than not. And it wasn't an ethnic slavery. It was a slavery that had to do with indentured. You had people that were in debt, and so they would have to sometimes sell their children into slavery to pay off those debts. Uh, to us, that's just the worst thing, and, and we can't even imagine trying to sell our children into slavery um, but at the same time, uh, we do many times sell our ch- kids into slavery, right? We don't look at it that way, but say uh, someone's older and they have a bunch of debt and they pass away, you're leaving your children into slavery to that debt because the borrower is the slave to the lender. So we, we might do the same thing. It's just not a formal like selling your child. And, and so just kind of a different way to look at it. Well, Onesimus was owned by Philemon. Now, to keep this in perspective, uh, Dr. Luke, who wrote the, book of, the gospel according to Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts, he was a slave. He was a more expensive slave because he was a man who was a doctor. He was someone's personal doctor, but he was owned as an individual. He was a commodity. And so uh, the gospel makes us no longer slaves to sin, right? And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, actually points out the fact that in Christ, I'll quote it from the passage rather than butchering it, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So as believers, Jesus has leveled the playing field. There is no human being that is worth more to God than another. We're all the same. He looks down upon us and he sees one of his children. Now at the same time, all children are different. If you've got multiple kids, you know, you just by nature of who they are, you treat them all differently. But God treats us all equally. He cares about us all equally. So back in Philemon, he says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who is once unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. But look at this. He says, I'm sending him back. So I'm asking you. I'm not demanding of you. He says, I therefore am asking you that you receive him. That is my own heart. So why is he asking Paul Philemon to receive his slave back? Wouldn't he be grateful to receive something that he had lost? And it's now been found? Well, in Roman culture, if you owned a slave and your slave ran away, you had the right to put them to death. And in many cases, if you put them on like an APB out for them, an all points bulletin, you could go to the the country, the empire, you could go to an official and put their name on a list as a fugitive, a runaway slave. And in many cases, if their name was on that list and someone found them, they would actually beat them, and then they they would be put into slavery to someone else. So they may not be sent all the way back to their original owner. So 
he had the right, according to the law, to punish his slave. But Paul's going to appeal to him and say, hey, wait a minute. As a Christian, you don't have to, but I would encourage you to receive him back. Because though he was once unprofitable to you, imagine this, you own someone, which we can't imagine, but imagine you have somebody that's working for you. They're the one that you have cut your grass, maybe. And you're paying them to do so, but they, you pay them hourly. For some reason, you got into a deal where you're paying them to do it hourly. And they're not working as hard as they can because they're getting paid hourly. So I, it takes me all day to mow your grass. And they just kind of take breaks and they, they work and they're just really unprofitable. They keep costing more and more to mow the grass to do the same thing. And then they run off and they steal from you and they never come back. And, so, and maybe someone will come to you and say, hey, why don't you hire them back? Onesimus, he says, I've begotten while in my chains. In other words, I've led him to the Lord. He's gotten saved. So now he's no longer just a slave. He, he left you a slave and someone who stole from you, many believe. But now he's going to come back to you as a brother in Christ. And now because of his relationship with Christ, he's not going to steal from you. He'll probably be a way better slave. And so the gospel doesn't necessarily get rid of slavery. Now it does change the way we treat people. Now I'm not seeing that it's condoning us owning people. But what I'm going to say is that in a society like Rome, it wasn't necessarily saying get rid of your slaves. It was saying your relationship with your slave and your owner should change. And actually, we study that in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, where Paul actually writes to slaves that were within the church, that many of them might have a position of leadership even within the church, and then a congregation member or uh, a lay person might be... Um, in the church, and they would no longer be the owner in the church setting. They would actually be someone that's in leadership, been being led by one of their, the slaves that they own. So it'd be kind of odd. But he says there in verse 1 of chapter 6 in 1 Timothy, let as many slaves or bondservants as are under the yoke count their masters worthy of honor, that they would treat their masters, those who own them, with honor, so that the name of God and his teaching may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. So it doesn't necessarily get rid of the slave and master relationship, but it redeems it and makes it one of mutual honor and respect treating them as equal joint heirs with Jesus of a kingdom that we will be partakers of. And so I have in there, uh, in uh, the slide there, in verse 8, love appeals and it does not demand. In verse 8, he appeals to him and he says, hey, Philemon, this is the right thing to do. In verse 10, he says, this is also my son in the faith. He's going to go on to say, just like you are. Because what we find out is that Philemon was led to the Lord by Paul. And so how cool is that? They're essentially not only brothers in the Lord, but they were led to the Lord by the same individual, making them brothers in Christ and then some. And so he says in verse 11, also he was once unprofitable, but now he's profitable, which is a play on words because Paul's a wordsmith. And in verse 11, he says Onesimus is now profitable, but his name also means profitable. So how cool is that? And in verse 12, he says, I'm sending him to you so you should receive him. Show kindness, show mercy, 
be affectionate. And Philemon's name actually means affectionate or kind. So show him this kindness. So I also want to make a quick note about Paul's own conversion. He's asking Philemon to show grace to Onesimus, right? He's saying, hey, receive him back. I know he stole from you. I know he was a runaway slave, but I want you to receive him back. And of course, there's going to be pushback from Philemon because he's going to go, I already lost enough. I'm going to cut my losses. I don't want to see that guy's face again. And he was afraid to receive him back. It takes faith to forgive someone. It always costs the forgiver in order to forgive. Jesus, in order to forgive us, it cost him his life. It cost him his blood. It cost him leaving heaven. You know, read Philippians 2. He, he did not consider it, uh, you know, he, he left heaven to be with us. The great kenosis, to, to give up his glory and to put on corruptible human flesh and to have to suffer. And so in the same way, think about it, Paul had people do this for him. Paul was on the road to Damascus to take people away, Christians, out of their homes, to enslave them to prison, but also put them to death. He was there when Stephen was stoned to death. And so while he was doing this, Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. He knocked him down. He humbled him. He spoke to him. He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because he was persecuting Jesus's people. And, and Saul, being blinded, responded and said, what? He said, okay, Lord, who are you? And then the Lord reveals himself to him. And then he says, what do you want me to do? Okay, I, I'm, I'm at your service. I'm at your, I, I can't do anything to save myself. What do you want me to do? I want to repent. And he gives him instruction in Acts chapter 9. He says, I want you to go to Damascus, the place you were going to go persecute Christians, I want you to go to a Christian who's heard about you, and I want you to do what he tells you to do. And there was a man there by the name of Ananias. So in Acts chapter 10, excuse me, chapter 9, Ananias is also going to be given a step of faith to take. In verse 10, it says, There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. So he spoke his name. And he said, here I am, Lord. And so the Lord said to him, arise, I want you to go to a street called Straight, inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he's praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias, you, and he says, coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight back. So then Ananias answered, look at this, he's fearful. And he says, Lord, I've heard about this guy. I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from chief priests to bind who, all who call on your name. And the Lord said to him, go anyway, for he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So the thing that Ananias was being called to do to receive Saul, who it'd be like someone saying, hey, I know snakes bite, but why don't you let this one into your house? Uh, no thanks. You know, Ananias has to t- trust the Lord and, and receive this man that is 
up until this point proven himself to be a murderer. And so Ananias takes this step of faith and speaks into the life of Paul, gives him his sight back, and Paul the apostle becomes one of the greatest heroes of the faith in the New Testament. And now he's speaking the same thing as the Holy Spirit spoke to Ananias and inspired him to love on Paul and to speak grace into his life. Paul is now, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, encouraging Philemon to do the same thing, to forgive this slave that has left him and robbed from him. It's going to take faith for Philemon to do it. So on in verse 13, verse 12 says, I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him. That is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in, in my chains for the gospel. Receive him back. He said, he's saying, and if you want to know whether or not he's worthy to be received back, if you don't take him, I want him. Leave him with me because he's been helpful and he's refreshed me. He's, he, he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. Verse 14, but without your consent, I will do nothing that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. Paul says, I, I would love to keep him for me, but I won't do that uh, if you want to keep him because without your consent, I don't want you to feel like because I'm the apostle Paul, because I led you to the Lord that you have to give to me. He gives him a choice. And I always look at this uh, passages like this, and I think, why do we spend, as a Christian church, so much time trying to compel people to give to the Lord instead of just appealing to them? You know, making them feel like they have to rather than giving them the choice to freely give. You know, it's so much more enjoyable to give when you don't feel like you were compelled by somebody putting the thumb screws or, you know, whipping the cat around and trying to, God's broke and he needs you to give to him. I, I love that my pastor encouraged me early on that uh, if people want to give to the Lord, just let them do it freely and don't, you know, we don't pass the plate here just due to the fact that I don't want people to give just because the plate's going by and because they think someone else is looking at them. I want them to be able to worship the Lord with their finances and do it without anybody knowing. Just make that between you and God. And so Paul's the same way. He says, I, I, I'm not going to assume anything on you. If you want to send them back to me, I would be blessed. Um, but at the same time, I want you to do that on your own free will. Verse 15, he says, for perhaps, and I love this, on the next slide there, Jesse, perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. He says, perhaps God in his control over all things allowed your slave to run away, allowed you not even to notice it was happening so that he could come to Rome thinking he would blend in. And then the Holy Spirit, whether Onesimus realized it or not, taking him right to Paul, so that Paul could lead him in, into faith in Jesus, so that he could be sent no longer just as a slave back to, Onis, or to Philemon, but as a beloved brother. And not only that, but to receive him for eternity. You know, how many people in our lives do we want to keep as friends or as relatives that we get along with? And because of that, we don't share the gospel with them because we're afraid that we'll lose them as a friend 
but we don't realize that we might lose them as a friend for a short time, but the opportunity is there to gain them as a brother or sister in Christ for eternity. Like, the risk is very low in comparison to what the reward could be. You know, we might put somebody off for a time, but then God could bring them back around, and they might hate us in this life because we said something hard to them that, hey, your astrology or your, your, your whatever thing you trust in, your, your, your alcohol addiction or the thing that, that gives you peace is going to keep you from the kingdom of heaven, you need to get saved. You need to repent and believe in Jesus. And as a result of that, they might hate us for a while, but they might in the long run, end up becoming a believer, coming to faith through someone else, and then we get to spend eternity together. So God's in control. He left a slave, but he's returning as a brother in Christ. And what this young man, this, this Onesimus, might have meant for harm, God has turned around and used for good. Not only in Christ, but also Paul would gain him as a spiritual brother. So verse 17, if then, he says, you count me as a partner. Receive him as if he were me. Receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with you, excuse me, writing with my own hand. I will repay, not to mention to you that you also owe me even your own self besides. He says, I will repay his debt. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. He says, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. So he says, if you account me as a partner receive Onesimus as if he were me. And then he doesn't, I love this because the gospel is laced through these few verses. He says here, receive him as if you would receive me. He says, and if he has any debts, put them on my account. I will pay for them. See, that costs Paul, right? But Paul is exemplifying the gospel in this because he says here, receive him as you receive me. God the Father receives us as if we were Jesus. And that is a hard truth for me to wrap my mind around. When we get to heaven, we won't avoid judgment because of anything other than what Jesus did. So when we get to the pearly gates, as everybody always says, if we get to the, the, the throne of judgment, we stand there, there's going to be a trial, and God's going to ask us, why do you deserve to enter into my glory? And at that moment, as believers, really the only thing we can say is, I trusted Jesus. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, my sins, but he made them white as snow. So if that is in fact the case, then I'm only, I can only enter in because of him. Now there will be many that will get there and say, well, I did this, and my good outweighed my bad, and it's great, and here I am. And he's going to say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. But to those of us who trust Jesus, he's going to treat us like Jesus deserves to be treated. And I, I put this there for you. Jesus was treated like we deserve to be treated. He was judged for our sins. 
He was beaten. He was bruised. He was marred beyond any man, Isaiah says. But it was on our behalf. He was sinless. He didn't deserve a bit of it. But he did that so that we could be treated like Jesus deserved to be treated. We are now sons and daughters of God if we are in Christ. So Paul says on top of that, if he has debt, he doesn't just say, forget his debt, it's fine. He says, if he has debt, I will pay for it. And that's the same thing that God the Father does. He doesn't sweep our sins under the rug, but instead he sent a ransom for our payment. He sent his son to take our debt and to pay for it. Because God, even God, does not reject his law. He doesn't disobey it. It is who he is. And so he is a righteous judge. He doesn't just say, you know what, I forgive you. He pays for that forgiveness. He, it costs God the Father for our forgiveness. And so in the same way Jesus says to us, if this one has any debt against you, Father, let me pay for it. And I love that. He says, I'm writing with my own hand. I will repay, not to mention to you, <laughs> don't forget you also owe me, <laughs> kind of, because I was the one that pointed you to Jesus in the first place. And he's also saying to Philemon, and I think this is more of what he's saying, you need it forgiven too. Don't forget that. Don't forget where you came from. Forgiveness always costs someone. Receive Onesimus like you were received by me. So in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, I'm going to turn there real quick. Matthew 6, this is part of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus was asked by his disciples, you know, teach us how to pray. And so Jesus said, here, I'll give you a model for prayer. He says, in this manner, therefore pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, right? We pray that, Lord, forgive us our debts. But then he also says, as we forgive our debtors, those who owe us, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And I love that because Paul's saying, okay, you have an opportunity to do this now. You've been forgiven. Now, forgive your debtors. Forgive this one who owes you. And we like that uh, as long as we don't have to do it. What did Peter say? He said, Lord, how many times must I forgive someone who sinned against me? Seven times? And I think Peter was thinking of himself pretty highly going, hey, that's a lot, right? He said, how about 70 times seven? And I don't think Peter was a math guy, by the way. I think, I think that Jesus was saying to him, I know you don't know how to do math, and that's a bigger number than you know how to do in your multiple, multiplication tables. So more times than you can remember. Just keep forgiving. So I have for you one more passage, Matthew 18, as we close. Matthew 18, verse 21. Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70, 70 times, excuse me, 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 
But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. And the servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And the master of that servant was moved with compassion, kindness, and he released him and he forgave him the debt. An amazing picture of God the Father. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe, like a loan shark almost. And he said, So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Amazing to me, it's the exact same thing that he had said to his master. But he didn't recognize himself as being in the same position as this young man was. And it says there in verse 30, he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved and they came and they told their master all that had been done. This is a great injustice. So then his master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry, righteously, I think, and he delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. And I ask you this morning, as we look at this passage, how much is that like us? I'll confess to you that many times I have held a grudge or been unwilling to forgive someone who has sinned against me. All the while, I've been forgiven so much more. And so, one more slide there. Uh, He's asking Onesimus to do something that is hard, but he's asking him to do something that is righteous. So Paul mentions as he closes in verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark... Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. find that interesting because Mark had aggravated Paul early on and had left him while they were in the middle of a missionary journey, and Paul was unforgiving of Mark. But I think he mentions Mark here because later in life he said, hey, send Mark to me. He is profitable. I want to encourage him. I, I, I'm so sorry for the way I treated him. And then he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, mentioning that, that we need grace and we need to practice grace. And I love what Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote. He said, all of us are Onesimuses. You know, many of us would think of ourselves as Philemon and say, hey, I have people that have sinned against me and I need to learn to forgive them. But also, we're really Onesimus. We were slaves to sin. We ran away from our master We've, in the meantime, the Holy Spirit's been sent to capture us, to reveal that we need Jesus to be forgiven. And then he sends us back to the world to be servants, to be co-workers, to be good sons and daughters, to be uh, grandparents and parents, uh, in, no longer as slaves, but as partakers of life. And then we get opportunities to, to be Philemon and to forgive. The question is, will we give what we've been given? Will we receive the grace of God and take it for ourselves and hoard it? Or will we then hand it out? Freely you have received, Jesus said. Now go and freely give. 
So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for the testimony of Paul and scripture and for the many ways he calls us and uh, to repent. And um, by the Holy Spirit still speaks through the words that he penned down and have been preserved for us. And I'm so grateful that they're all put in one binding so that we can carry it with us and learn from it and be nourished and transformed in our thinking. And the world that we live in is unforgiving, is uh, unmerciful, ungracious, uh, is a harsh taskmaster. But we who have been given light and forgiveness and shown grace and mercy, we deserve to be judged. And yet in your graciousness and your mercy and your kindness, you sent Jesus to be our forgiveness, to be our sacrifice. And because of that, we've been set free if we will trust in him. And so, Father, I ask, as we've been forgiven, help us to walk in forgiveness. Help us to forgive others as we have been forgiven. Not forgive others because they deserve it, but as we have been partakers of forgiveness. Father, show us and give us the power and the strength and the willingness to obey and to forgive others as we have been forgiven. We love you and we thank you for your great gift to us. Lord, help us to share it. Help us to be those who testify of your grace in our own lives. Help us to be those who are humble and realize that we didn't deserve what we get just like anybody else we're going to forgive. Lord, show us the way. Help us to be obedient in this point. And in so doing, Lord, may your testimony go forth and may many come to know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's close with a song.